Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I was joined by my dear friend and triple board certified physician in functional and integrative medicine, Dr. Aaron Hartman, who I like to think of as the great medical detective. We dove deep into a syndrome called chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. We spoke at length about how our exposure to biotoxins can lead to this chronic inflammatory response. We spoke on mold and contributors to mold exposure, mycotoxins, the role of specific types of testing and providing clues to where we need to look at our exposure and how it can manifest. Largely a great deal of this immune system response that has gone into overdrive is attributable to many factors, environmental things we're exposed to in our food and our personal care products. We also touched on how SIRS can be triggered by things as seemingly benign as overexercise, post-traumatic brain injury, and also breast implant illness, and how to treat this, predominantly focused on lifestyle and dietary recommendations, as well as things we can put into our environment, including specific types of filters and how we can work with our local healthcare professionals to find people in our areas that can help us determine the root cause of a lot of symptoms. I found this conversation particularly of interest because I feel like there are so many people out there that are diving down rabbit holes when what might be exacerbating their symptoms may be this chronic inflammatory response overwhelms. Well, today I'm delighted and excited to have a colleague with me, Dr. Aaron Hartman. We haven't talked about mold on the podcast or mycotoxins or some of the systemic inflammatory side effects that can come from chronic mold exposure. So welcome, Aaron. It's great to be here, Cynthia. I'm super excited about our conversations. We've already had tons of conversations outside of (laughs) this world in person and stuff. So I'm excited to share some stuff with your community. Yeah, absolutely. So one statistic that I found incredibly disheartening that I think is a great way to kind of start the conversation is that 50% of buildings in the United States have water damage. I found that stupefying and surprising. And so why do you think that we aren't talking, we as a community in the medical community, aren't talking enough about mold exposure and mycotoxins with our patients? Well, I think there's a couple of things. The first thing is, is that in medicine, it takes, people forget, it takes 10, 20, 30 years for something to go from research to a few practitioners see it, to a few more, to publish articles, to mainstream. You know, it took about 30 years for hand washing to catch on when Ignaz Semmelweis invented that, right, in the 1830s. It took 50 years in the United States and over 7,000 research articles before the Surgeon General of the United States said smoking causes cancer. So it's just a slow process is the first thing. Um, I actually think if you look at how things typically work, you're thinking 1996 to 98, when this was first you know, discovered by Dr. Shoemaker to now, that's actually a pretty quick turnaround within 20 years, we're actually talking about it. So in the medical world, it's actually kind of quick, to be honest with you. On the traditional medicine side, it's 
you know, we tend to talk about things we have treatment. We have singular treatments for our medical system bases, things on randomized trials, which you've been involved with. I have a, I'm a clinical researcher as well. And you tend to research things that you can isolate and do single interventions for. And this is something that's too complex, involves people's health, their environment, um, workplaces, homes, other infections, um, a whole host of things. So it's just, I think it's outside the realm of that simple model we currently have. And it's taken a while. I think one of the reasons actually taken up so quickly is because so many people are sick from it. You mentioned the 50% number, but 23% of Americans have the gene that's associated with an increased risk for chronic inflammatory response syndrome Sears. So it's a lot of people, when you look at the symptoms, you know, brain fog, ache, non-restorative sleep, weird skin sensations, rashes, gut issues, all of a sudden it sounds like a lot of people I see every day. Well, and I think there's also the component of just understanding it's very hard for people to necessarily wrap their heads around something they necessarily can't see. I think, you know, for those of us that have looked at mold, we know what it looks like when it's problematic, but it's innocuous. It can be hard to discover and discern, you know, people will go to a work environment, not realize that there's a mold issue. They're feeling sick. They attribute it to other things, hormonal fluctuations, you know, they're diagnosed with fibromyalgia. They're told they're leptin resistant. They're told that they're insulin resistant. And yet what's really at the basis of all of this is that they've had this exposure and it's my understanding and certainly correct me if I'm wrong for those people that are genetically more susceptible to mycotoxin exposure, it can be multiple exposures over many years. It may not be one major insult. It may be multiple exposures that then fill that bucket that all of a sudden it then they become symptomatic or they be, it becomes problematic. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, with mold, you know, I'm just gonna refer to it as mold issue. It's actually chronic inflammatory response syndrome is a technical term and mold is one piece of many pieces within that category. But, you know, I've had patients, you know, one of them was a, um, a soccer player at UVA and he, you know, he had overtraining, which overtraining is a small part of Sears. He actually grew up in a moldy house at UVA. He lived in a moldy dorm. He got a tick bite. And from the tick bite, he got Lyme and he developed Hashimoto's. And so, and we couldn't get his antibodies squared away until we realized mold was the thing that was sitting there. And that inciting event, that trigger is what started his whole cascade. And so that's where, you know, you can, you're hundred percent right where you can have these long-term exposures for years, not realize it because you're healthy and functioning. And then something, a car accident, you hit your head, a concussion, um, a traumatic life event, an infection, you know, COVID I'm seeing people in my clinic with long COVID who, you know, their initiating event, like the tick bite is an infection. And I'm finding out that they have crazy mold issues in their home. So that's where you almost need a medical detective, someone who's going to like get with these people, take a deep dive and connect all those dots that aren't necessarily connected in a 12 to 15 minute time slot. And it's hard. I know, you know, one of the things that is associated with, you know, SIRS or mycotoxin illnesses are things like POT. So postural orthostatic hypotension, which I saw a lot of in clinical cardiology. And there weren't a lot of things we could do for these patients, this dysautonomia where they had this um, dysregulation in their autonomic nervous system. And oftentimes we would just give them very powerful drugs to increase their blood pressure and then send them to a POT specialist of which there were not a lot of them. But I know that my colleagues and I all felt really frustrated because we didn't feel like we had a better, we didn't have a better way of treating these patients. And at that time, I certainly wasn't even thinking that all of these pieces could come together, creating the perfect storm to be like, what's the one thing that tips people off. And for you being the medical detective, and I think that's such a great way of how I think about you is that you take the time to really closely examine all these different factors 
and how they can impact someone's health and how they can present, like you mentioned, tick bites. I mean, tick, you know, Lyme is endemic in the state that we live in. And I saw so much of it in the County that I just moved from to the point where anytime we saw something unusual, we started drawing Lyme titers and, you know, tick-borne illnesses titers. And so, um, you know, one of the more unusual tick bites that I think the research was actually done out of university of Virginia was the Lone Star tick, because we had people who couldn't get cleared for bypass surgery, cardiovascular surgeries, because they had this mammalian allergy that was secondary to a, but a seemingly benign tick bite. So really understanding that tick-borne illnesses are not as benign as we like to think they are that in a small amount of people, they can really go on to develop some pretty significant sequelae. Yeah. It's really funny, Cynthia, you're referring to alpha gal there. Like mm-hmm. I see that all the time. I see it all the time and I pick it up all the time when I see people with weird things and I'll do an allergy panel and their beef and their pig IgE pops up and I throw off an alpha gal and it just bam, it's it's right there. And it's really interesting. I personally, and this is where I've actually reached out to Dr. Heyman and a bunch of my colleagues that are in this world. And and sometimes we're the people noticing these trends before they kind of come to the surface, so to speak. I've seen a lot of my patients with chronic inflammatory response syndrome also have POTS and dysautonomia, also have alpha-gal, also have SIBO. And there's a whole school of thought actually in the muscle activation syndrome that has this thing called the PENTAD, right? It's dysautonomia, GI dysfunction, autoimmunity, leaky gut, and these, and these things actually coalesce together. And so you'll see someone who has POTS and no one will realize that there's actually literature from the University of Texas, a case study, a case series of curing POTS with treating SIBO, lotus naltrexone, and IVIgG. Well, if you know, you know what actually dysautonomia is, you realize it's a neurologic one. There's actually an autoimmune, 30% of dysautonomia is actually autoimmune. There's a Mayo um, antibody panel on it. And so all of a sudden, wait a second, I'm seeing this vascular and neurologic cardiac kind of thing that has a gut component, has an autoimmune component. I've actually gotten um, some of my patients, um, I've actually had a couple of them going to remission just by doing you know, oral IgG, lotus naltrexone and dealing with their SIBO. And it's just interesting how connecting these dots, you know, every one of these things, like the old model of medicine is every disease, every entity is a separate silo and nothing connects, right? So POTS has nothing to do with your hypermobility, which I see, you know, one in 30 Americans is hypermobile. If you're double jointed, you have an increased risk for sleep apnea. You have an increased risk for leaky gut. You have a higher need for vitamin C, trace minerals. You have lower pancreatic function, right? So all of a sudden, just looking at someone touching their skin, looking at their elbows, I'm already thinking, connecting, okay, does this person have muscle activation? Do they have some mold issues? Do they have positive thyroid antibodies, right? And so in our current system, where we look at these silos and the model is nothing interconnects, in our world, it's like everything you have to prove to me, you know, the old model is proved to me that they're connected. And my model proved to me that they're not connected. And that's one of those things that inquisitiveness that I've been doing for years has helped me to see a lot of these things interconnect. And you know, even with some of Dr. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Schoenfeld's work. He's an immunologist at the University of Tel Aviv. He has a really interesting book. that's about vaccines and autoimmunity. And he has a syndrome called Asia syndrome, which is auto-inflammatory syndrome induced by juvens. When you read it, it sounds so much like chronic inflammatory response syndrome. But as an immunologist, he's looking at juvens, which are things that tickle our immune system, things like chronic infections, things like vaccinosis. And he talks about in his book about the old vaccines having um, petroleum distillates in them. You know, I see in the military people exposed to burning gas and burning fuels, developing this Gulf War syndrome. Is that an Asia syndrome? Is it a weird variant of chronic inflammatory response syndrome? You know, there's one variant of that, the silicone. You know, we have someone in our group that actually all, they 
specialized explants, right? You know, how many women have weird things related to that? You know, dental infections. We have experts in our group that deal with dental infections related with these things. And so, you know, that's where my challenge is not to connect too many dots and make something applicable to the person I'm seeing so we can get them better. Well, I think it's a really important point because I trained at a large research institution. I used to think about every body system in a bucket. So I was the cardiology person. And unless someone was dealing with life-threatening issues, we didn't deal with thyroid. We didn't deal with immunologic issues. I mean, we were very laser focused. And yet over the years, I kept saying that I'm seeing these interrelationships and yet I'm strangled in my practice because at that time, nurse practitioners couldn't practice autonomously. So I always had to Ultimately, I had a physician that came behind me that would agree or disagree with my plans. And so I'm so grateful that we're seeing this evolution in medicine, that we have people that are connecting the dots in a way that's done so thoughtfully because there are so many people that are suffering. And I say this with great love and reverence because I know our peers, whether they're traditional allopathic trained or they're integrative or functionally trained we're all trying to do what's best for our patients. That's ultimately what it comes down to, but we're so constrained by a traditional model that I think we have to be thinking very broadly in order to meet the needs of our patients at a time and place. So when we're talking about mold, and I want to make sure that we further define this just a little bit so that for people have context, we can be exposed to mold in multiple ways. One of the things I see with my patients is that there's a lot of mold exposure from food. So foods that are seemingly benign, like peanuts and corn and coffee are tend to be very mycotoxin exposed foods. And this is sometimes surprising. And I think peanut butter is something that's so beloved here in the United States. Like I go to great extremes to find my husband and my younger son, like super high quality peanut butter but it has to be like small batches and you have to have conversations with people. And you know, when I buy coffee for, I don't know, I'm not a coffee drinker, but when I buy it for either gifts for clients or for my family members, there's a guy in Northern Virginia who is completely OCD about mycotoxin testing for his coffee beans. And so really understanding that we can be exposed to mold in our environment, in our homes, with food, what are some of the other ways that you're seeing people are getting exposure in their personal and professional lives? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the single, if I was to pick one thing, the single biggest thing is probably people's where they work and where they live, you know, um, food. It's really interesting. There's two different camps in the mold world. You know, if you're familiar with Dr. Nathan, Neil Nathan, some of his work and on the other side is Dr. Heyman and Shoemaker, you know, by definition, chronic inflammatory response syndrome is a chronic inflammatory syndrome. And so, you know, the reality is our, you know, our bodies were designed or made to look at most things, most molds, most bacteria, most things in the world and ignore them. You know, there's, we, we eat mold all the time, you know, kefir, fermented foods, you know, have certain types, you know, moldy, I love moldy cheese, you know, there's, but our immune system is supposed to ignore most of that. And when you consume, you know, mold, typically it gets excreted through a urination. You know, and when you look at a lot of the people with Sears, we're looking at liver excretion. That's where that gene you mentioned, it actually affects how you excrete it in the bile. And so, you know, we're exposed to these things all the time. The question is, is your immune system responding? You know, if you do like, a, if you eat a bunch of corn chips, for example, you know, you're going to get exposed to mycotoxins. Corn are like known to be, you know, peanuts are like horrible with it. Um, wheat and grain I and mean, grains in general have mold issues. And so if you check someone's urine and you see them pee out, you know, these, these mycotoxins, the question is not, did you eat a moldy food? The question is, is your immune system responding? Is your immune system going bonkers and not just your 
antibody immune system is your innate, like the very primitive part of your immune system that's pre-programmed to recognize these 10 domains, you know, part of our innate immune system recognizes 10 major domains and viruses and bacteria and, and mainly viruses and cancer. And our innate immune system knows to attack those. And that's the issue, the labeling part with um, Sears. And so is that part of your immune system being activated? Do you have the symptoms that go along with that? And then do you have the testing that shows that? And so that's where I think to stepping back from the mold and realizing, you know, when you look at chronic inflammatory response syndrome, you know, 20% of it is not water damage building associated. It's hysteria, ciguatera, you know, red tide, recluse spider bites, concussions, all those kind of things. Within the 80% that's water damage building, 80% of that is endotoxins and actinomyces, which are not mold. One's a bacteria coating and one's a soil organism. There's over 40 different particles or things in a water damage building that activate your immune system. You know, endotoxins, one of those you actually get exposed to in pollution ridden cities in the air. And so I think you know, realizing mold is a, is one of the things, but it's, it's the company that mold keeps and stepping back and saying, you know, is there something else in my system, in my body, in my environment that could be a toxin that would activate this innate part of my immune system? And there's like, you know, and that's where mold is a big player. I don't want to minimize that. You know, like you said, half of the buildings in our country um, have water damage, but if you only focus on that, you're going to miss 64% of chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So that's, I think maybe that might be a take-home message to think about that. You know, is there something else in this Sears world that actually might be messing with you? And that's where I get, see people get stuck as they're focusing just on the black mold, just on stachybotters, just on wallemia and their duct work, just on penicillium and their hurts me testing. And it's like, well, that's great, but you have to realize that's not the majority of what causes chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And I think that's an important differentiator. So if someone is listening to our conversation, what are the first steps? Obviously they need to work with someone who is intricately aware of the nuances related to SIRS. Do you start with personal testing? Do you start with home testing? Where do you generally recommend? Like if we're giving like a broad suggestion broad, yeah. slash recommendation. Yeah. Well, I actually did a blog series. It's on my website that actually walks people through that. And I put it together specifically for this reason, for people to like help self-discover. And if they have a practitioner that's open to it, to take it to them. And so with a diagnosis, the first thing is the symptoms. There's 13 clusters, you know, do you have eight of the 13 positive, you know, you know the, one of those is brain fog. One is attention. One is weird skin symptoms. One is hot flashes and gut issues. Do you meet the symptom criteria? Now, I want to put a little caveat there. I also do a lot of the Brenson, you know, protocol work with, with dementia patients. Now patients come to me with dementia who I automatically jump and do the mold testing that have mycotoxin issues. And their only symptom is they don't know anything, right? They have dementia. <laughs> so, so yeah, so it's like, so I realized there are outliers even in the way of this, you know, but um, so I'm, I'm acknowledging that, but you have the symptoms first that would fall into this category. The second thing is the second tier of diagnosing, which is, you know, the VCS testing, which is a marker of blood flow to the back of your eyeball. You know, when people talk about different lab tests, like hypoxia inducible factor, which is one of the things that's affected, like that's basically making your vessels let less blood flow go to end organs and the VCS test, which is just a visual computer test anybody can do anywhere in the country from the comfort of their own home. It's literally looking, is there enough blood flow going back to the back of your eyeball? You know, Marcon's testing, you know, and that's like the really simple tier one, tier two. And if you kind of, you know, if you meet tier one, 95% of people will 
actually have chronic inflammatory response syndrome. The VCS test, you know, 95% of it will, will fail that test, but 5% won't. So you still have to realize there's still a subset that might pass that. Then there's the lab testing, which is tier three. And there's different clusters in that. And it's interesting that testing itself is looking at how's your brain interacting with your body, looking at a cortisol level with your adrenals, but also looking at your ACTH in your brain. Is your brain not communicating with your adrenals? You know, looking at their um, concentration, their osmolality, how, you know, how much sodium is in your blood and looking at, is the brain telling you you're, to do that? You know, the, the gene testing, and then a couple other inflammatory markers, like a C4A, which is looking at this innate immune system, TGF beta, um, and then P9 is actually a marker that Dr. Houston at Vanderbilt, you know, looks at for people with inflammation in their heart. In the, in the mold world, we look at for people with inflammation in their tissues. If you meet lab criteria, then you're, you, know, you have a 99.97% chance of having chronic inflammatory response syndrome, right? And so, but the thing I tell people, you know, it's really funny because when you see someone in the clinic, you also have to look at their history because I've seen people who've already kind of self-treated, who removed things, they, their symptom cluster is positive, but then like it's questionable to lab testing because they've already done so much work. So I think that's where being a skilled clinician, you know, working with someone who's seen a lot of these patients to like, to figure out, well, you know, you've actually kind of sort of self-treated, maybe you didn't know that more fat, like lipid therapy, right? Fats help remove microtoxins from your body. People don't realize that doing omega-3s, phosphatidylcholine actually helps remove microtoxins, you know, getting more fiber, particularly konjac root fiber or beet fiber, or actually okra actually helps get more of these microtoxins out of your body. So some people have innately just listened to their body, started to figure things out. But to answer the question, I did put like a blog series together to actually for this very purpose for people to kind of walk through it. Because the reality is there's a handful of people actually certified in the country to do this kind of stuff. And so it's really hard to find someone who kind of um, has the experience. And then put on top of that, you know, how many of my patients with Sears are hypermobile and have undiagnosed sleep apnea? <laughs> You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how many people have mast cell activation syndrome, which, you know, it's this little small thing or have dysautonomia. And all of a sudden now, if I don't start treating your dysautonomia and your SIBO, it's going to make it hard to calm your innate immune system down. So it really kind of, um, it's a lot of stuff. No. And for anyone that's listening and saying, I'm really curious, we'll make sure that we link up all these blog posts, which I actually read in anticipation of this conversation, because I wanted to be able to steer the conversation to making it as helpful as possible to listeners. Now, when we're looking at these labs, one lab in particular, I find really fascinating. So the role of melanocyte stimulating hormone, can we talk a little bit about this? Because when I think about the average middle-aged woman, we're talking about brain fog and hot flashes and weight gain and weight loss resistance. When I read about this MSH, it really triggered for me. There. I was like, oh my goodness, like there really are lots of opportunities where women in particular might be experiencing these symptoms and it might not just be, oh, you're in perimenopause, you're in menopause. There could be so much more to it. Well, it's interesting. MSH, which is, there's this melanocortin molecule and that your brain releases at there's different stages. You know, your midbrain goes down to your hypothalamus and pituitary. And this molecule is broken up and the ACTH molecule, which makes cortisol as a part of this MSH actually there's a part of that actually helps regulate pain in your midbrain. It's amazing how many people will have these fibromyalgia kind of symptoms and their MSH is gone. That also, you know, melatonin, you know, melatonin and glutathione are your two major antioxidants in your body. And melatonin is like the antagonist, so to speak for cortisol. Well, if your MSH is down, it's going to affect that. And then it also plays into things like serotonin. So it's really interesting how the small little thing 
is related with a whole lot of these other kind of things. And I've had some of my patients with issues. Actually, there's certain peptides actually that actually are MSH analogs that I've used with those patients because they're kind of stuck and we'll use things. And that's also part of the power of VIP. If you get people down the pathway, um, sometimes peptides in these patients can be really powerful, but MSH, it's something it's, you're absolutely right. It's overlooked and affects so many aspects of our health, pain, sleep-wake cycles, and even because of what its association with that um, POMC molecule, it's associated with cortisol, which, you know, just look at cortisol. people have my adrenal fatigue. It's like, is it adrenal fatigue or is it mold? You know, yeah. <laughs> there, no, there's so much to it. And, and what I found really interesting is it also impacts the pituitary gland. Yeah. And so when people say to me, like, I'm thirsty all the time, you know, my, I'm having inappropriate amounts of thirst and they don't have diabetes. They're not insulin resistant, which now and now is becoming more and more unusual. Like 90% of the population is insulin resistant. But when I start hearing those types of conversations, I'm like, now I'm going to start thinking like there could be much more to this. So for listeners that are listening, that are saying, how in the world do I keep all this straight? Dr. Hartman has really good blog articles on this. You should definitely check out. What's interesting. You mentioned about that too, because one weird symptom is people who carry static charges who shock a lot of things in the wintertime. You know, people forget that with um, cystic fibrosis, one of the early things with cystic fibrosis was those people actually carried static shocks, right? Because they have a high salt on their skin. It's a similar but lesser degree phenomenon that happens with osmolality and differences where people actually, their skin gets a little saltier. They get relative dehydration. They want to drink a lot and then it goes right through and they pee. And those are the patients also that sometimes doing focused cell salts and electrolytes can actually help treat some of those symptoms. And I think that also probably is a subset that have the dysautonomia in POTS. Part of it is that they can't keep enough fluid in their arteries. And so you give them sodium chloride, right? You probably did in the cardiology clinic. Mm-hmm. It helps. You give them sodium. And this is a little trick I learned as well. You give someone a liter of um, sodium chloride, like a, a liter bag. Lactate ringers work so much better because the lactate actually helps the magnesium get into the cells. And that was one of the things I, I noticed with some of our local POTS experts, they were not using LR with these patients. You talk with the surgeons, they're like, oh, we love LR. It's great. Yada, yada. I'm like, that's because the lactate actually has a metabolic effect on these patients. And so I've had patients have flares of their POTS related to mold. And I've basically done uh, you know, IV LR in the office weekly for like four to six weeks to actually get them out of their flares. And so sometimes it's also connecting those dots as well, which makes sense from a, a cellular level, but just you know, LR is, you know, $10 a bag versus $3 a bag. So it's just not used that much. Well, and it's interesting. I was a former ER nurse in inner city, Baltimore, and we used a lot of lactated ringers. One of my favorite IV fluids to grab when I was working with my trauma patients. So the other thing to really think about when we're screening, whether we're doing lab work or this visual contrast sensitivity, when we talk about home testing, because this question came up quite a bit when I identified to listeners that we were going to be connecting where do they start with that? Because I know ERMI testing was a term that, you know, I'm more familiarized with, yeah. but I don't know if there are better options that are out there. What should people be looking for? You know, the thing about it is you, know, you can do the, most people do the spore trap testing, right? Which is you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and get the little test kit with the little Petri dish. The problem is for every single spore, there are 500 particulates in the air. So by the time the spore trap testing is positive, it's really bad. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is the ermine hurts me too testing. Like you're using, you know, Hawaii five O, you know, Miami kind of thing. Like where you're looking at DNA PCR. So you could have had a water damage from three to four to five, six years ago. You remediated it, but you still have microparticulates in your furniture and your carpet. And you still pick that up, which is one of the reasons why, if you look at the official protocol, the, um, the white paper on it from them, 
the Heyman Shoemaker Group. They're like, you need to wipe the walls down, fog, throw your furniture away, all this kind of crazy stuff, because you can remediate the thing. You can find the cause in your house, but if it's still in your carpet or furniture, every time you sit down, you're going to re-basically populate the testing on the wall. So I like Ermi and Hurts Me Too testing. If it's negative, your house is clean. Right. If you do it, and it hurts me too, is if you look at the army, the hurts me too is actually the one that they verified for health related score. So that's a little nuanced to the army testing. But if you do it and your army is low, your hurts me too score is low, then your house is safe. If it's elevated, then well, is it currently an issue or is it an issue in the past? And the, th- and the thing with the army hurts me too testing as well is that it doesn't tell you which part of the house is messed up. Is it your air handler? Is it your crawl space? Is it the master bedroom? Some people will like do Ermies in each room in the house, but then I'm like, well, you could just have a building biologist come out and look at your house. And that's where I used to do lots of testing on the front end of things. Even my house, my house to date, my Ermie is still I'm 16 or 17. You know, my Ermie, my house is still, even though I've done all that, we've talked about this. I've encapsulated my crawl space. I've got a um, radon remediation system. I've, you know, it's closed foam, the, the walls. I've done all this stuff. We've got HEPA filter in all the rooms but I'm not sick and my wife's not sick. Am I going to throw all my furniture away? Am I going to throw all of our throw rugs away just to get the test to normalize when I'm not personally sick? And that's where it gets a little nuanced. I do have some patients that are super sick. And these are the people who tend to have EMF issues where they're literally, their nervous system is on fight or flight and they will react to stuff. It's a part of the brain's trauma response. And these people may need to go that extreme. Okay. You know, one of my patients actually, when she went to her storage space, had a flare of her Sears just by going and getting some stuff out. And it was like, she had to have friends throw all her stuff away. So there are those patients, but those are not the majority. And so I love Ermi hurts me too testing, but I've just kind of reverted these days to basically just having a building biologist come by and look at people's houses. Cause if you look at the testing, it's probably cheaper long-term to have a building biologist come by and spend six hours in your house, use an infrared gun, look at the walls, check the humidity and your base plates, do your crawl space pull the panel off your air handler to look at the um, corals to see if there's any particulates there. You know, the local guy I use, he actually, one of my patient's house who was, so the um, humidity in the house, humidity is supposed to go, like go down as you go up in your house, right? There's one up, not down. And so he basically went behind uh, one of their stairwells on the outside wall and put a hole in it. They had no vapor barrier outside their house. The Tyvek wasn't there, it wasn't done. And so, you know, you're not going to figure that out with a hurts me too or army test. And that's where I've kind of, I used to do lots of house testing on the front end of things. I've gone on my career. I've just do it less and less and less, unless I'm trying to prove to a husband or a spouse or someone else, like this is legit. Because I think in the end, it's probably cheaper, more efficient to have someone come look at your house if that's available in your area. How does someone go about finding a reputable building biologist? That's a hard one. This is probably a terrible question to ask you, but in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, I know in this area that you and I are both in. I know that you would be my go-to resource, but if someone's listening that has done ERMI testing, maybe they're genuinely concerned after listening to this podcast that, that they need their environment tested. Is there accrediting agencies? Is there like a resource yeah. people can go to, to look for finding there, someone in their area? That's yeah. Yeah. There is, there's a David Scrantz, S-C-H-R-A-N-T-Z, who um, is one of the bigs, I think he's out in Colorado relief. He's like one of the big guys and they have a lot of resources with his stuff. There is an, um, a nationwide IEP indoor environmental professional or building biology organization, but it's like anything, like we've talked back and forth about people looking at your crawl space, right? You might, it's like being board certified. I'm board certified. There's lots of people that in my book, the certification is like the low hanging fruit. Congratulations. You passed the test. You went to school X, Y, Z. Okay. You sneezed and you passed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you really, it's hard. You know, you want to, there's those big 
level ones, like I mentioned, but you really want to find, is there someone close by? And some places in the country, you might have to travel out of state. You know, the guy, one of the guys I used to work with is up in DC. He has an office in DC and in Florida. And he spends half his time in Florida and half his time in DC, you know? And so he just did me a favor to drive down to Richmond until I found my current local guy. There's not a lot of got these guys either, you know, and yeah. these guys and gals. And so it's just like, I wish I had a magic, like go to this website, Google this here, you know? The Surviving Mold website, which is Shoemaker's website, does have some resources on there, but they don't have like something nationwide where you can go and find, you know, any state. You know, if you're in Arizona, you're in luck because there's a good one down. If you're in Colorado, um, DC Air, Florida, but most of the country, I don't know who's up in New York State, for example, you know, or Washington State. So I, I wish I had a better answer. But yeah, I mean, yeah, try to find your local mold specialist and see who they refer to. Maybe that's the best. And again, there's not a lot of them either. So it's like the way thing I explained to patients, we're at the, um, you know, you, you have people in medicine, they're tip of the spear. We're the air that's being compressed in front of the tip of the spear. And so it's just, you know, it's really a cool place to be, but it's, you know, you, there's a lot of pressure and it's ever changing. Yeah, I bet. And that, that's certainly helpful for people to, you know, kind of thoughtfully make sure that you're working with a mold certified practitioner first, and then find those additional resources. Now, I want to make sure we touch on some ways that SIRS can be triggered because I think this is important. You mentioned over-exercising. So how do you define that? Is that the average like 45-year-old acting like a 20-year-old or is this someone who's at an elite level yeah. that is really pushing the boundaries of, of their physical exertion? Well, the person who has exercise-induced chronic inflammatory response, there's someone who's significantly overtraining. You know, there's someone who's running two to three, four hours a day, who's pushing it. Usually a professional has a full-time job in the daytime who now is training the evenings for their marathon or ultra marathon, who's just not resting. You know, it's interesting. Every time you run more than 40 or 50 minutes, you get a low grade rhabdomyolysis, right? Your CPK goes up and, and all those little breaking muscle breakdown things are actually damage associated molecular patterns, they actually activate your immune system and your immune system goes and clears it out and you heal your muscles. If you're doing that at a severe level routinely, eventually you can activate your immune system. Once people are in that serious state, there's a whole other group of people who develop more like a chronic fatigue kind of thing where now their exercise and mitochondria tolerance is like all the way down here and they can go to the mailbox and back before they have to take a nap, right? So that's a totally different group that actually the overexertion is not the primary cause. It's now that they have serious, just daily things are fatiguing. So I want to make that little difference there. I always think about the people that are still doing like Ironman competitions in their forties and fifties and, and people who will say like, I could do this in my twenties and thirties. And now my recovery time is so significant. Maybe I'm undermining, you know, the health benefits that I used to get from this particular activity. If you look at elite at professional elite athletes, you know, the, the, the I, I use the analogy of the Bulgarian weightlifting team. They work out six times a day for 40 minutes at a time. So they work out for 40 minutes and they rest. They do their massage, they do their cupping, they do their, their spa cool therapy, right? And then they, and they work out six times a day. You know, a lot of the high-end athletes have, you know, Tom Brady's workout thing, right? You look at, it doesn't look impressive. It's like, oh, he does this, but like throughout the whole day, he's like literally recouping after everything. He's not, and you, they, you tend not to exercise more than an hour at a time. And that's something else. It's like, you're not working out. If you work out more than an hour straight intense, you're overtraining, which most people just, you know, they, it blows their mind, you know, like, oh my gosh. And like, okay, that's one of the reasons why now, and you don't heal quite as well in your 40, it, it, you're, you're feeling a little achy, a little hurtier. And it's, it's, it's also really crazy. to think about the athletes who run marathons and like how many times you see women with osteoporosis 
Do you see, you know, the people stop having their periods. They have these weird hip fractures, you know, it's like overexertion can have a bad effect on your body. And that's actually a really kind of trending right now with a lot of our patients in their forties um, and fifties trying to like, you know, get back to their youth quarter. And it's, we're in different places in our lives, you know? Yeah, no, I think I definitely crossed over that time period, probably in my early forties when, you know, I would get up at four 30 in the morning and I would go to the gym and then I would shower at the gym and go straight to the hospital. And after a period of time, I was like, I was just so tired. I was never recovering. So really listening to your body is important. Also the post-traumatic brain injury. So people that have a concussion, et cetera, is it the amount of concussions that can make them susceptible or can they just have one significant TBI that can tip them off? What's both. It depends on their tolerance. You know, I had a patient several years ago that actually got a concussion from riding a roller coaster, you know, just that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The G forces actually gave her a post-concussive syndrome, you know, so you've got people on that end and you got, and then I had mother actually, once I'm working with right now who got a concussion in the OR, he's actually on a tech in the OR then went and played video games all night long and that activation. So you've got all these little nuances, but you know, you can, it can be a degree, like a severe car accident, TBI. I'm working with someone right now, actually, that we may know that had multiple small concussions at the beach as a young, young lady, then a big one that's flared her leptins high. She gained a lot of weight, you know? And so it's, it's really interesting. We all have our own threshold above which we can have a brain injury. If it's up here, you can be a professional boxer. If it's down here, I mean, I had another lady who was actually at Home Depot looking at cabinets. She leaned over, went up, hit the back of her head on a cabinet. That, that was what gave her a concussion that she took six months to recoup from. And so you have to realize that we all have a different threshold. Some people have a really high one. Some people have a really low one. And just being aware of that, you know, you, concussion's not the degree. It's not like you have to be knocked out. It's like, what's symptoms afterwards? Thinking, mood, sleep disturbances, right? People don't realize these things are signs of a post-concussion syndrome. It's really interesting. And I almost don't want to ask this question, but I did get asked this question. So I'm going to ask it. So breast implant illness, there's a lot of, of literature concerns, et cetera. What are your thoughts on this and its interrelationship with SIRS? Okay. So we actually, I mentioned Asia syndrome. I forget. I talk, I'm starting to forget when I've talked to you about what. So <laughs> it's all mushing the for, for listeners, Dr. Hartman and I are friends. He and his wife and my husband and I are all friends personally. So yes, it can yeah, so, it can be challenging to remember where we talked about when and yeah, what. It was was it 30 minutes ago or 30 days ago? <laughs> I need to slow down myself a little bit speaking of that. But um, so there's a thing called Asia syndrome, and it sounds a lot like chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And a couple of components of Asia syndrome are adjuvants like in vaccines silicone, like in breast implants. And so it's really interesting how, and this is from Dr. Um, Yehuda Schoenfield's work at the University of Tel Aviv. Like he's recognized that these adjuvants, these things that tickle your immune system. And with the vaccines, he particularly looked at petroleum products. Well, I saw that in a lot of people in the first Gulf War, you know, the Gulf War syndrome. Was it the vaccines they were getting, the 20 plus vaccines? Was it the anthrax vaccine? Was it that? And then inhaling burning petroleum for a year that activate these people's immune systems. If you look at the data, the number of people who got chronic, I mean, who got Gulf War syndrome is almost the same number as the percentage of people in the general population have the HLA-DRDQ. Interesting, right? And so I think breast implants is like, it's this little shelf thing over here. Most people do fine with them, just like most people do fine with dental implants, just like most people do fine with vaccines, but the small subset of the population who have 
this gene who can't clear the toxins who already have their immune system revved up. And you got to figure, you got to remember that doing a breast implant, they're mucking around with a lot of tissue and releasing a lot of these damage associated molecular patterns that activate your immune system. So some of my patients have actually had explants done. I've been doing IV vitamin C, prepping them so they had a minimal impact from removing the implants. But the testing, if you look at a lot of the, um, the, some of the websites out there are there for, for breast implant disease, you look at the labs they do, TGF beta, C4A, <laughs> right? Wait, 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 wait a second. These are almost the exact same labs as we're looking at for chronic inflammatory. What are the symptoms? Fatigue, tiredness, brain fog, body pain, sleep disturbance, fluid imbalances, hormone irregularities. Wait a second. This sounds a lot like chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And so in my mind, it's a different thing. Like Asia syndrome is a different thing. I personally think it's one more thing in that 20%, you know, I was talking about the 20% or not water damage building. And we're learning more and more what fits in that 20%, you know? And so I think personally, that's where it fits, you know, and it is a real thing. And part of the evaluation when I see people for breast implant illness is the lab testing. And it's interesting how many of those people, if you dig in there, okay, yes, I'm a female who has a personal history of trauma. I had a head injury. Oh, by the way, you're double jointed and you have some undiagnosed sleep apnea. My gut's bloating, gassy, which and you have SIBO, which we now know is an autoimmune spectrum disorder. If you dig, these people have other things going on and they had other things going on before they got the implant. This is why you're so good at being the detective, you know, making all these little connections that, you know, we were thinking this is in one bucket and this is in another bucket, yeah. but they're actually all connected. So for people that are listening that maybe they've had an exposure to mold or maybe they've got Erlos Danlos, which is that that hypermobility that I saw so much of at Hopkins, which is absolutely fascinating. We could probably talk about that for an hour. What are some of the common treatments or, or ways that you tackle these symptoms just kind of broadly, because yeah. uh, you can go down a big rabbit hole talking about this, but mm. I thought a lot of these things seemed, were very kind of benign. So people, it's not necessarily spending tons and tons of money, having to yeah. get your house reconfigurated, but what are some of the supplements or ways that you look at how to address this chronic inflammatory yeah. response? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say was induce inflammation, right? And so it's clean your diet up. You know, you got to work. If you're eating gluten, you're eating dairy, you're eating all day long, you know, it's interesting. It's amazing. You know, you've taught me some stuff. It's amazing how powerful interval fasting is, or at least spreading things out to decrease the endotoxins in people's gut that your gut is making that leak through your liver that then go to your brain. So I start with the diet first, let's work on the gut, you know, clean your diet up, eat a, you know, one of the dietary um, interventions is an amylose, a low amylose diet for mold patients. I usually don't do that because it's a miserable diet and who's going to do that. You know, <laughs> um, I just kind of say paleo-ish, you know, I mean, paleo-ish, you need lots of fats. People don't realize that these toxins get stuck in people's cell membranes, which are phospholipids are fat. So eating clean, healthy fats, clean omega-3s. You talk about seed oils a lot. It's like people don't realize that these things are toxic fats that actually make your, reduce the flexibility of your cell membranes. And that reduced flexibility is a partially plasticized cell wall. People forget the plastic on your computer it used to be oil on the ground, you know, years and years ago. And that's kind of the phenomenon when you take these lipids and you partially plasticize them and then stick them in your cell membrane. So just flushing those out with lipids, use a lot of phosphatidylcholine, you know, a balance of omega-3s and omega-6s that are from non-rancid, non-heated sources. You know, that's where I kind of start with you know, clean the diet up, healthy fats are a big player. And then you know, is there ongoing exposure? You know, maybe you can't move. So you just, you know, you get HEPA filters for your bedrooms. One thing I tell people, and you, you get down these weird rabbit holes, but 
if you can remove 99.97% of the particles in the air, is that good enough? For most people, it kind of sort of is. And once you realize that a lot of these mycotoxins and VOCs attach to particles in the air, if we move the microparticulates, these small particles, for a lot of people, that's good enough. So, and um, this is one concept as well people don't realize is you have to move the air in each room in your house. Like putting a filter on your, your HVAC is not going to clean that air. So you need a HEPA filter in the place you're sleeping. You know, start with that. That's a simple thing you people can do in your main living space is getting a decent HEPA filter. So clean air and then removing other toxins. You know, part of this issue is a, is a toxin removal. Are you getting other sources of toxins in your clean? What do you clean your house with? What do you put on your body? The average female puts 200 chemicals on her body every day before she leaves the house. What chemicals are you putting in? People don't realize that these lights chemicals are endocrine disruptors. They act like estrogen and mess women's hormones up. So start just cleaning things up. The environmental working group, you know, I've, I did a blog series as well on detoxification that kind of dives into clean water, clean food, clean air, clean environment for the purpose of guiding people through how do you detoxify? I kind of start there because the reality is it's a big you can't address everything. And I have patients I've been working with for years that have just now to stage where they're starting to move <laughs> because, you know, or I have patients I worked with and like, they're basically doing it all now. So everybody's at a different place. And you have to meet people where they are, but I, that's kind of where I start. Well, I think it's a really important distinction meeting people where they are, because if we come out of the gate with a very overwhelming amount of changes, it's hard for people to do that. And I do agree that it all starts with food. And for a lot of people, just changing how frequently they eat, the food choices they're making, restructuring their macros, bringing down inflammation can yeah. be hugely impactful. And Cynthia, I have one story for you for a patient that's just crazy. You know, you see people, different practitioners, you have to remove all of the mold and you have to like only wear cotton that came from lambs from the Southeastern part <laughs> of the Jordan or whatever, right? It's like kind of crazy. But I have a patient of mine who was diagnosed at MCV, the local university here with Addison's disease, type one diabetes, came to see me and she was, has a history of trauma and just a lot of things going on her just, and she was, she was a wreck. I diagnosed her sleep apnea. I realized that her type one diabetes was not really type one diabetes. Realized she had mold issues in her house, but just changing her diet radically, getting on some better medications for her diabetes, which she's off of now, by the way, she was still in a moldy house and 80% of her symptoms went away. And so it's just, you know, you got to meet people where they're at. And for her, she couldn't afford to move. She was like in this old, like block houses that you walk into and you feel the humidity kind of thing, you know, but for her realizing she had undiagnosed sleep apnea, her oxygen was going down to less than 70% at night. No one had diagnosed it before because she wasn't an obese male with a big neck, right? Realizing that trauma was a big part of her story and starting to work on that. I'm cleaning her diet up and then getting on, getting her sugars down as quickly as we could with some GLP ones, Victoza type medications, and ultimately got her off of that as she stuck with her diet. You know, she didn't have the acids anymore. I don't think she ever had it. I think her brain, that whole HPA access was so messed up that it just shut down because she's incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she's still in the same, she's still in the moldy house and she's doing great. And so it's really like, it's not to say, don't focus on it, but to say and meet people where they're at. Not everybody needs to burn their house to the ground and bulldoze it and burn their furniture and go into debt, right? I think meeting people where they're at and realizing it's everybody's got their own journey that I go through. And there's hope. I mean, I, I have another patient who actually had breast implants and lived in a moldy house. And we were able to get her controlled without taking out her implants. She eventually moved, but she was like 80-ish percent better by staying there. And it was like all these other things in her life, you know, that we had to work on. Eventually she did move, but it's, our bodies have this amazing capacity to self-heal and you have to, and everybody's body is a little different. 
your body is different than your best friend's body. And, and just meeting people where they're at and realizing the nuances and giving them the tools and helping people self-discover. That's incredibly empowering. And it's so nice to know that you probably have many, many stories that are just like that, that are so incredibly helpful for people to understand that, you know, we're all bioindividuals, that each one of us probably needs to take a different approach, that there are practitioners out there that will meet you where you are. And they don't practice as I affectionately used to refer to my time at Hopkins in, in an ivory tower where everything was perfect because we are not, none of us are perfect. We're all imperfect human beings. I loved our conversation. I could go off on a tangent, just talking about trauma, but I'd love for you to share with listeners how to connect with you, how to, you know, connect with you on social media, how to find your blogs, if they want to work with you, how they can work with you or your um, practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just Google Richmond function, like Dr. Aaron Hartman, Richmond functional medicine, it comes right up. I'm in Richmond. I've created this whole ecosystem where, you know, if you truly believe the literature that half of all chronic disease in our country can be directly attributed to eating processed foods, that 80% of heart disease and 70% of cancer can be prevented by diet and lifestyle, then educating people becomes the biggest thing we can do for individuals. So with that in mind, I've actually done blogs on my website. We've created actually a whole, um, some courses within our community to help guide people through this. And those are all available on my website for people to peruse. I've got a reading list, a book list there as well. When I do my next date update, I'll be adding your book on there as well. Cause oh, I got really, you. really liked your book on interval fasting, but um, that just books people can read to get information about how do you get yourself better. So, and the hub for all that stuff is my website, which is richmondfunctionalmedicine.com. Well, thank you as always for your insightful conversation. We'll have to have you back again. Oh, great. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. And hopefully this will be helpful to your community. Absolutely. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 